Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 11 of The Fall of Constantinople and the title of this episode is The Strain of War. In the previous episode, we heard about how the defenders of Constantinople were bravely holding out against the vast Ottoman Turkish army. 7,000 defenders against a Turkish army of over 100,000. We've heard about how the Turks had taken their ships overland into the Golden Horn so that although the Byzantines still had their great iron chain blocking the Golden Horn, the city was now surrounded on all sides. The Byzantine Emperor Constantine XI Palaeologus knew that survival now depended entirely on help from the West. Therefore, on the 4th of May, he dispatched a small ship under the cover of dark and with his crew disguised as Turks to sail out of the Golden Horn and into the Aegean which he hoped could make contact with the Venetians and persuade them to come to the rescue of the city. Meanwhile, in the city itself, the defenders were fighting with extraordinary bravery against colossal odds, but the strain of war was beginning to wear them down. And in this episode, we'll hear how hope was fading in the city. As before, I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful book on the fall of Constantinople. Hope you enjoy it. In the early days of May 1453, the strain of war was beginning to tell on the nerves of the defenders of Constantinople. The mutual dislike of the Venetians and the Genoese broke out into open quarrels. The Venetians blamed the Genoese for the disaster of 28th of April when they had tried to burn the Turkish fleet in the Golden Horn. The Genoese retorted that it was all the fault of the captain from Trebizond, Coco's imprudence. They then accused the Venetians of sending away ships to safety whenever an occasion arose. The Venetians pointed out that they had unshipped the rudders from many of their galleys and had stored them and their sails in the city. Why, they asked, had the Genoese not done the same? The Genoese remarked that they had no intention of lessening the efficiency of their ships, particularly as many of them had wives and children at Pera to consider. When the Venetians further upbraided the Genoese for keeping in touch with the Sultan's camp, they answered that any negotiations that they had conducted there had been done with the full knowledge of the Byzantine emperor, whose interests were similar to their own. The recriminations were so public that the emperor in despair summoned the leaders of both sides and begged them to keep the peace. The war outside our gates is enough for us, he cried, for the pity of God do not start a war between yourselves. His words had some effect. Outward cooperation was restored, but the ill will remained. It is probable that during these days, the Byzantine emperor had tried to negotiate with the Ottoman Sultan. It seems that the Genoese of Pera had made tentative inquiries on his behalf, but the Sultan's offer was unchanged. The city must be surrendered to him unconditionally. Then he would personally guarantee the citizens their lives and personal possessions. The emperor could retire, if he wished, to the Greek mainland. The terms were not acceptable to the emperor. No one in the city, whatever his political views, would now 
now contemplate the humiliation of surrender, nor had anyone much faith in the Sultan's supposed clemency. There were, however, among the Emperor's advisers several who believed that he should escape from the city. He would be better able to organise a campaign against the Turks from without than from within. His brothers and many sympathisers from all over the Balkans would surely flock to his banner, including perhaps the valiant Albanian leader Skanderberg himself, and he could rouse Western Europe to its duty. But the Emperor Constantine quietly and firmly refused to listen to them. He feared that if he abandoned the city, the defence would disintegrate. If the city had to perish, he would perish with it. The Genoese of Pera had good reasons for wishing for peace. On the 5th of May, the Turkish guns began to fire over the city at the Christian ships by the Great Iron Chain. They aimed particularly at the Venetians, but a cannonball, 200 pounds in weight, fell upon a Genoese merchant ship laden with a valuable cargo of silk and sank it. It belonged to a trader at Pera and had been anchored close under the walls. The municipality sent at once to the Sultan to complain, pointing out how useful the neutrality of Pera was to him. His ministers received the mission with some truculence. Their gunners could not know, they said, that the ship was not a hostile ship, a pirate, perhaps come to help their enemies. But if the owner could prove his case... The Ottoman Sultan, as soon as he had captured Constantinople, would look into the matter and give full compensation. During the first days of May, Urban's great cannon had been out of order. By the 6th of May it was repaired, and the Ottoman bombardment of the land walls showed renewed vigour while the Turkish ships were obviously being prepared for battle. The defence rightly suspected an assault on the following day and made its own preparations. When that assault came, four hours after sunset on the 7th of May, it was, however, directed only against the Mesotikian section of the land walls. A vast number of Turkish soldiers, armed as usual with scaling ladders and hooks attached to their lances, poured in over the filled-up fosse. There was bitter fighting for about three hours, but they could not force an entry over the ruined walls and the stockade. Prodigies of valour were attributed to a Byzantine soldier called Rangabe, who was said to have cut in two the Sultan's own standard-bearer, Amir Bey, though he himself was soon surrounded and killed. Though the Turkish navy had not attacked that night, conditions in the Golden Horn seemed so insecure that next day the Venetians decided to unload all the war material kept in their ships and store it in the Imperial Arsenal. On the 9th, they further resolved that all their ships, apart from those required to guard the Great Iron Chain across the Golden Horn, should be moved into the small harbour known as the Neorion, just within the chain under the Acropolis, and that the crews should be brought to help defend the Blackenai quarters, where the walls had been badly damaged by the fire of the guns on the pontoon. Some of the sailors were at first unwilling to agree. It was not until the 13th of May that this arrangement was completed. The sailors' main task was to 
to see to the repair of the wall that protected this quarter. They nearly arrived too late. On the previous evening, the Turks had launched another full-scale attack, this time on the high ground near the junction of the Black and Iron Theodosian Walls. It was nearly midnight when the assault began. It was repulsed and was soon cooled off. The walls here were still in too strong a condition. On the 14th of May, the Ottoman Sultan, satisfied in view of the Venetians' move that his ships in the Golden Horn would not now be attacked, moved his artillery batteries from the hills behind the Valley of the Springs and took them across his new bridge to bombard the Blackenai Wall at the section where it began to mount the slope. They did some damage there, so a day or two later he moved them again to join his main batteries in the Lycus Valley. He could see that this was the most promising section to attack. Henceforward, the bombardment of other sections of the wall was only intermittent, but with the increased number of guns, it could be carried on without a pause. On the 16th and again on the 17th of May, the main Turkish fleet sailed down from the double columns to make a demonstration against the iron chain across the Golden Horn. It was still well defended on both occasions. The ships retired without firing an arrow or a shot. A similar manoeuvre was made on the 21st. The whole fleet came with drums and trumpets sounding. It appeared so menacing that bells were rung in the city to put everyone on the alert. Once again, after promenading up and down in front of the chain, the ships sailed back quietly to their anchorage. This was the last occasion on which the chain was threatened. It is probable that the morale of the sailors, few of whom were Turks by birth, was not very high and neither the Sultan nor his admiral wished to risk the humiliation of another defeat. Meanwhile, the land operations had been supplemented by attempts to dig mines under the walls. The Ottoman Sultan had begun such operations during the first days of the siege, but he lacked sufficiently experienced miners. Now his general Zaganos Pasha produced among his troops a number of professional miners from the silver mines at Novobrodo in Serbia. They were ordered to dig a mine under the walls somewhere near to the Carizian Gate, where the ground was thought to be favourable. They started on their work far in the rear of the front line in the hope of escaping notice, but the task of digging under the foss as well as the walls was just too difficult. This mine was abandoned. Instead, they began to dig under the single Blackenai wall near the Caligarian Gate. On the 16th of May, their operation was discovered by the Byzantine defenders. The Byzantine megaducts Lucas Notaras, whose business it was to deal with such an emergency, called upon the services of the engineer Johannes Grant. At his request, Grant dug a countermine and succeeded in entering the Turkish mine where he burnt the wooden props. The roof then fell in, burying many of the Turkish miners. This failure discouraged the Turkish sappers for several days, but by the 21st of May they were digging mines at various parts of the wall, concentrating mainly on the section near the Caligarian Gate. The countermining was done by Notarius's Byzantine troops with Grant to, to direct them. In some cases, it was possible to smoke the enemy miners out of their caverns in order to flood the mines from cisterns intended to provide water for the foss. 
The Ottoman Sultan had already made use of another device. On the morning of the 18th of May, the defence was horrified to see a great wooden tower on wheels standing outside the walls of the Mezotikion. The Turks had assembled it during the night. It consisted of a wooden framework protected with layers of bullocks and camels' hides, with steps inside which led to an upper platform, itself as high as the outer wall of the city. On the platform were stored scaling ladders to be used when the turret should be moved up against the wall, but its primary purpose was to provide protection for the workmen engaged in filling up the fosse. Experience gained by his earlier attempts at an assault had taught Mehmet II that the fosse was still an obstacle and that it must have a solid pathway built across it. All day on the 18th of May, his men worked to build a road over the fosse while the turret stood over them on the edge of the ditch, opposite to a tower which his artillery had destroyed and from which the masonry had fallen forward into the ditch. By dark, this task was almost complete in spite of fierce Byzantine opposition. Part of the fosse had been filled with the fallen masonry and stones and earth and brushwood, and the turret had been edged onto the causeway to test its strength. But during the night, some of the Byzantine defenders crept out and placed kegs of powder into the fillings. When they were set alight, there was a great explosion, and the wooden turret burst into flames and collapsed, killing the men on it. By morning, the fosse was half cleared again and the nearby wall and stockade repaired. Other turrets built by the Turks proved equally unsuccessful. Some were destroyed and the rest withdrawn. Such successes kept the spirits of the Christian defenders from falling. On the 23rd of May, they had their last heartening experience That day, as on previous days, the Turks attempted to mine under the Blackenye Wall, but on this occasion the Byzantines were able to surround and capture a number of miners, including a senior officer. Under torture, he revealed to them where all the Turkish mines were placed. Grant was then able to destroy them one by one that day and the next. The last to be destroyed was one whose entrance had been cunningly concealed by one of the Sultan's wooden turrets. Had the plans not been betrayed, it would never have been discovered. From that time, the Turks abandoned their mining activities. Indeed, the Turks may have realised that the strain on the defence was doing their work for them, for remarkably few Christians had as yet been killed, but many had been wounded and all were tired and hungry. Supplies of arms, particularly of gunpowder, were falling low and food was shorter than ever. And on the 23rd, the day of the mining victory, Christian hopes suffered a terrible blow. That afternoon, a boat was sighted tacking up the Marmora Sea with a number of Turkish vessels in pursuit. It shook them off and under a cover of darkness, the great iron chain was open to let it in. It was thought at first that it was the forerunner of a relieving fleet, but in fact it was the brigantine vessel that had sailed 20 days before to search for the Venetians. It had cruised to and fro through the islands of the Aegean, but no Venetian ships had been found, nor were there even any rumours of Venetian ships in the offing. When it seemed useless to search any longer, the captain asked the sailors what their wishes were. One man said that it was foolish to return to a city that was probably already in Turkish hands, but the others silenced him. It was their duty they declared to go back and tell the emperor 
whether it was to life or to death. When they came to his presence, he wept as he thanked them. No Christian power was coming to join in the battle for Christendom. The city could now only pray for a miracle. But even this faith was to be tested. There were signs that heaven itself was turning against the city. During these days, everyone remembered again the prophecies that the empire would perish. The first Christian emperor had been called Constantine, son of Helena. The last would be similarly named Constantine. Men remembered too a prophecy that the city would never fall while the moon was waxing in the heavens. This had cheered the defenders when they faced the assault during the previous week. But on the 24th of May, there was a full moon, and thereafter it would wane. Indeed, on the night of the full moon, there was an eclipse and three hours of darkness. It was probably on the following day when the citizens heard of the hopeless message brought by the ship that had looked in vain for help from Venice, that a last appeal was made to the Mother of God. Her holiest icon was carried on the shoulders of the faithful around the streets of the city, and everyone who could be spared from the walls joined in the procession. As it moved slowly and solemnly, the icon suddenly slipped off the platform on which it was born. When men rushed to raise it, it seemed as though it were made of lead. Only the greatest effort could replace it. Then, as the procession wound on, a thunderstorm burst on the city. It was almost impossible to stand up against the hail, and the rain came down in such torrents that whole streets were flooded and children nearly swept away. The procession had to be abandoned. Next day, as if such omens had not been enough, the whole city was blotted out by a thick fog, a phenomenon unknown in these lands in the month of May. The divine presence seemed to be veiling itself in cloud to conceal its departure from the city. That night, when the fog had lifted, it was noticed that a strange light played about the dome of the great church of the holy wisdom, Hagia Sophia. It was seen from the Turkish camp as well by the citizens, and the Turks, too, were disquieted. The Sultan himself had to be reassured by his wise men, who interpreted the sign as showing that the light of the true faith would soon illuminate the sacred building. For the Byzantines and their Italian allies, there was no such comforting interpretation. Light, too, could be seen from the walls, glimmering in the deepest distant countryside far behind the Turkish camp, where there should be no lights. A few hopeful watchmen declared that these were the campfires of troops come with John Hunyadi, the Hungarian, to rescue the city. But no army appeared. The strange lights were never explained. Now, once again, the Byzantine emperor's ministers went to him to beg him to escape while it still might be possible and to organise the defence of Christendom from some safer spot where he might find support. He was so weary that while they talked to him, he fainted. When he came round, he told them once more that he could not desert his people. He would die with them. The month of May was drawing to a close, and in the gardens and the hedgerows in the city, the roses were now in bloom. But the moon was waning, and the men and women of Byzantium, the ancient city whose symbol had been the moon, prepared themselves to meet the final attack.
But just as hope was fading amongst the Christians, so too in the Turkish camp there was growing pessimism and a general feeling of frustration. The siege had lasted for seven weeks, and yet the huge Turkish army with its magnificent war engines had achieved very little. The defence might be weary and short of men and materials, and the walls of the city had been badly damaged, but no Turkish soldier had yet made it through these walls. There was still a danger that help might might arrive from the west. Mehmet's agents had informed him that a fleet had been ordered to sail from Venice, and there were rumours that it had even reached the island of Chios. There was always the possibility also that the Hungarians might cross the Danube. During the early days of the siege, an embassy from the Hungarian leader John Hunyadi had arrived at the Turkish camp and had suggested that, as Hunyadi was now no longer regent of Hungary, the armistice that he had signed for three years with the Sultan was no longer binding. Moreover, morale among the Sultan's own Turkish troops was beginning to sink. His sailors had suffered humiliating reverses. His soldiers had as yet won no victories. The longer that the city eluded him, the more his own prestige declined. For a moment, the young Turkish Sultan paused to consider whether he should give up the attack. He called his council to consider what to do. Could the city, in its last hour, now be saved by a Turkish retreat? And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe, to recommend it to a friend, or even better, to leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about the Ottoman Sultan's moment of uncertainty as he contemplated whether to abandon the siege or to launch one last massive attack. See you then. (laughs) 